during this hour, we're going to return in our studies on Sunday mornings when I preach, and a lot of the series will, from this point on, be in the afternoon when I'm preaching. But we want to return to Genesis chapter 3, and we are looking right now at verses 14 and 15. I was well on my way in my preparations for today when we got the news concerning our dear brother Leo. But as I considered what I had prepared and was preparing, even though not everything I'm going to say directly applies to the uh, shock that has come to us, there is much I do believe in this passage that will be relevant to this particular trial that we are going through now as a congregation. Please follow along as I read together Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Once again, let's pray together. Most gracious and blessed God, we do thank you that even at the dawn of time, when sin first entered the world, you gave this wonderful promise in the midst of a curse that you pronounced upon the instigator of evil and trouble, even the devil. And we do thank you that that promise has been fulfilled in our Savior and is being fulfilled. And we do bless you that this promise is fulfilled in this church and the life of our dear brother that has gone forth now to be with you and will be fulfilled until that great and glorious day when we will gather together with that host streaming together into glory. And we do pray that you would prepare us, therefore, as we continue through this veil of tears, that we might serve you acceptably, that we might persevere in faith, that we might not grieve and sorrow as those who have no hope, but that we would be like those that indeed show that we serve a risen Savior, an interceding Savior, a conquering Savior, one in whom we even now lift up our prayers, and we pray therefore in his name, amen. Snakes throughout human history have been associated with Satan. In the early days of the Christian church, there was a very bizarre non-Christian sect known as the Ophites. And Ophis is the Greek word for snake. So the Ophites were snake worshipers. And the symbol of their sect, therefore, was a snake, but the god that they worshipped obviously was Satan. So they were Satan worshipers, who chose the snake, and the Greek word for snake to define their worship. In the Druze Mountains of Syria, there are a people called the Yazidi worshipers, and they worship the devil as well, and their symbol is also a snake. Snakes are still associated with satanic and occult worship, and this reflects the fact that the snake is cursed and is a symbolic reminder of Satan's degradation. Now, to most of us, therefore, snakes are repulsive. I doubt that there's anybody in this room that would like to take a poisonous snake together to go to bed with you tonight as you go to sleep. We must remember, however, that it is likely that prior to the fall, the serpent was a creature that was used by Satan to tempt Adam, and it was likely uh, presented in not in a repulsive manner, as we think of snakes today, but rather as a beautiful, attractive means by which he would draw Eve and then Adam into sin. And it was only after the curse that snakes were forced to slither around on their bellies. And Satan has also been portrayed by many artists as taking on the appearance of a grim, hideous monster, the sight of which is terrible to behold. But we need to remember that his usual approach is not that of a hideous monster, The Bible tells us that he is able to transform himself into an angel of light. 
He doesn't usually present himself in his temptations in a repulsive form, but rather as a friend coming with attractive proposals. And what we have here is the first gospel promise hidden in the first curse that was pronounced upon the devil. And with this first promise, their eyes were now open to see this serpent differently than they had before. They could see that this Satan who pretended to be their friend was their worst enemy. And now they could see that he was also God's enemy and that God had determined to overthrow this enemy. And in God's word to the serpent, therefore, we see five significant realities. And so far as we have concentrated on these verses that we have just read in a moment ago, we have been looking at so far four, and we come to a fifth such reality that is found in our text. First of all, we looked at the serpent's irreversible condemnation. In the first half of verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And then we saw in the second place the serpent's conspicuous degradation described in the last half of verse 14. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. In the third place we looked at his implacable opposition. Something that's implacable or two people that can't be at peace ever with one another. God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He declares that from this point on, there will be an implacable enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and her seed or his descendants and her descendants. And up to now, the woman and the serpent, they've been on friendly terms. But God says, I'm going to break this covenant with hell and I'm going to raise up a seed that will war against Satan and his seed. And both the serpent and the woman were to have a seed. And here the seed is used particularly in a collective way to refer to two posterities. And between these two posterities, there's going to be implacable opposition. Two kingdoms that will always be at war with one another. God is setting up two families, two opposing camps that will never be at peace with one another. But at the end of verse 15, there's a shift from this collective word, use of the word seed, to a reference to a single coming individual. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A single male individual who would be the seed of the woman par excellence will arise who will bruise the serpent's head. And it's crystal clear, therefore, that the identity of this promised descendant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Ultimately, the battle is not going to be a face-off between two armies, but ultimately, two persons, the serpent and a champion, even the Lord Jesus. And then in our last sermon, we looked at the fourth reality here, and it had to do with the serpent's limited realization. We see in verse 15, at the end of the verse, we read, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And there's an obvious contrast between the head of the one being bruised in one case and the heel of the one being bruised in the other case. The bruising of the head is obviously a reference to a fatal blow, and the other is not. And the serpent is going to strike out at the seed of the woman, but he, the most he can do, he won't be able to strike the head he will get, like serpents do, something that's more close at hand. He will bruise Christ's heel. And so there is only a limited realization of his enmity. And of course, this doesn't mean that Christ did not suffer. And throughout his life, he, his heel was bruised grievously. And during his time among us, in his human nature, he suffered frequently, sometimes grievously, but the great battle, as we saw in our last sermon, it came at the end when both body and soul, his whole human nature, experienced excruciating and prolonged agony and pain. It was a season which Christ described as the hour and the power of darkness, when Satan, in a way like never before, was unleashed against our Savior. All hell broke loose during that season. And we saw how 
And we try to describe in, in our last sermon the way in which the serpent and his minions grievously assaulted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at his betrayal, at his arrest, at his trials, and on the hill called Golgotha. But there's good news about what our text says about this bruising of the heel of our Savior. The good news is that this is all he could do. And this is the reason for the wording of our fourth point, the serpent's limited realization. Satan crushed, uh, he, he crushed Jesus' heel, but this is all he could do. He could not crush Christ's head. And that's the same in, in the case of, of the people, the seed of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, even you and I, we who have followed him and believe in him. But now we come to a fifth thing that we find, a fifth reality that is in our text. We want to look this hour at the serpent's ultimate mortification, something that's mortified is put to death. At the end of verse 15, God says to the serpent about the seed of the woman, he, that is Christ, shall bruise your head. In this statement, it comes before the words, and you shall bruise his heel. Primacy, therefore, is given to what the seed of the woman, here referred to as a single individual, he, this is what is given primacy in this statement. The seed of the woman par excellence, the coming champion, the Lord Jesus, is given preeminence in this conflict. And it should also be noted that the blow that he inflicts is to the serpent's head, a mortal, deadly wound. Satan, who heads all the power of the evil of the world, he will fight with all of his cunning. He will fight with all of his strength. He will, he will succeed in bruising the heel of the coming champion that he fights against. But at the end, it is the seed of the woman. It is our Savior. It is our Lord who will deal the crushing blow to the head of his opponent. And this crushing blow to the serpent and to his seed is described in Revelation 12, and I want to just read a couple verses, verses 8 and 9. It's described not only as a defeat for the serpent, but for all of his seed. War broke out in heaven, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. This victory, though, it came at a great cost. In Genesis 3.15, there's an implied connection between the serpent striking the heel of the seed of the woman and the crushing of a serpent's head. Now just think with me. You're out hiking on a trail in the west and a rattlesnake comes along and he, what does he do? He, he strikes at you and he, he, can't go, he can't get your head. And in the battle, you see, he'll get your heel, perhaps, but you'll get his head. You won't, you won't give up until you, you deal him a, a, a fatal blow. And this is what happened between Satan and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The injury and the pain that's inflicted on the seed of the woman is great, but it pales into, in comparison with the mortal blow inflicted on the serpent. And again, these two things are part of the same event. If the crushing of the serpent's head is done at the foot of the seed of the woman, is done by the foot of the seed of the woman, our text seems to imply that the injury done to Christ's heel it comes in the very act of crushing the serpent's head. So how then is this, is this accomplished? Well, there are four aspects of this accomplishment of crushing the head of the serpent. First of all, it was accomplished when Jesus died and rose again. This is why we have chosen hymns that especially focus upon his death and his resurrection. And at the, as the time of Christ's death drew near, he said to his disciples, Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. John chapter 12 and verse 21. He sees his coming death about to happen as the great event that will defeat the devil. Now, he says, this evil one, this prince of the world, he will be cast out. He will be defeated. And in the midst of Christ's sufferings, at the very time when his heel is being struck, 
Satan's head is being struck. And the figure of our text portrays the serpent's fangs sinking deep into Christ's heel. While at that very moment, the champion that is, is wounded, he deals a death blow. He crushes the head of the serpent. By his sufferings, therefore, Christ has overthrown the serpent. As one preacher poetically expressed it, Lo, by the sons of hell he dies. But as he hangs twixt earth, earth and skies, he gives their prince a fatal blow and triumphs over the powers below. Well, when Christ, or when Satan heard Christ cry, it is finished. And when he felt Christ's iron heel on his head, he knew at that moment, to his eternal horror, that he had just orchestrated the means of saving mankind. And when our great substitute drank the cup of divine wrath right down to the very bottom of the dregs of the cup, and he did this for every one of the elect, a great host which no man could number was eternally redeemed. And Satan knew that he was defeated. He knew that it was over with. He was not going to be able to take those ones out of the Savior's hand. They were redeemed. They were saved by the very event that Satan thinks at that moment would have won himself the victory. And the bitterness of Satan's defeat, it was not only intensified, it was, it, was, it was intensified, I should say, when he saw our great champion rise from the dead. The old serpent, he watched the pale corpse that was put into that tomb. But when he saw it, Three days later, come to life, he knew for sure that he had been utterly vanquished. And when our great Redeemer laid hold of the great stone of the sepulcher, and when he carried it away, so to speak, as the champion Samson carried away the gates of Gaza, post bar and all, when our Redeemer took the stone and he rolled it away, so to speak, and when our Redeemer opened the very gates of heaven, leading captivity captive, then the head of the dragon was crushed. And so Colossians 2.15 tells us that our Savior, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Charles Spurgeon, he paints this picture. Christ's cry, it is finished, shook the gates of hell. Down from the cross the conqueror leaped, pursued the fiend with thunderbolts of wrath, Swift to the shades of hell did the fiend fly, and swift descending went the conqueror after him. And seizing him, he chained him to his chariot wheel, dragged him up the steeps of glory, angels shouting all the while, he has led captivity captive and received gifts for men. Well, much of this, it is true, took place in the invisible realm. It was beyond the gaze of earthbound men. And for some time, therefore, it looked like the serpent had won. And no doubt this was a great blow to the faith of the disciples for quite some time. You know of it from reading the Gospels. It looked like the serpent had won. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great famous preacher of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 to his death in 1960, he relates this incident. He said, when I was in my late 20s, I went to Winchester, England, famous for its college and for its cathedral. The caretaker of the cathedral used to show the people around the cathedral. He'd been there for many, many years, and he loved to tell the story how the news of the Battle of Waterloo came to England. There was no telegrams in those days, but everyone knew that Wellington was facing Napoleon in a great battle. A sailing ship Semaphore, and the semaphore is the flags that they use to send signals, all kinds of flags. You can see them if you go down and look at that ship down in our harbor. A semaphore, the a sailing ship you see, semaphore with these flags news to the signalmen, and they were waiting for the signal on the top of Winchester Cathedral. And he signaled to another man on the hill, and thus the news of the battle was relayed by hand semaphore from station to station to London and all across England. And when the ship came in, the signalman on board semaphored the first word, Wellington. 
And then the next word, defeated. And then the fog came down and the ship could not be seen. Wellington defeated. This was the word that spread all over England. And there was great gloom all over the countryside. But after two or three hours, the fog lifted and the signal came again. Wellington defeated the enemy. And then, of course, all England rejoiced. Well, there was that day when in the eyes of the world, they had put the body of Jesus in the grave once and for all. Jesus defeated. That was the message that got out to everybody. They might have said everything's ended. Everything's gone. Sin is conquered. Man is defeated. Wrong has triumphed. But then three days later, the fog lifted. And Jesus rose from the dead. And the truth has come down ever since. Jesus defeated the enemy. And now that he has been defeated, what does Satan do? What can he do? In Revelation chapter 12, John tells us the result of this great defeat. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdoms of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. In his bitterness and in his malice, Satan is still trying his best to stir up trouble against the seed of the woman. But Jesus has crushed him. Satan is fighting a losing battle. But we need to remember that ever since that day when Jesus rose from the dead, Satan is a defeated foe. He did his utmost, you see, to take the race, the human race, all of it, to, as his captives. But on the cross, Jesus redeemed a multitude that no one could number. And then on the third day, the prince of the world was cast out. He could no longer deceive the nations like he once did. And for 2,000 years, he has been trying to reclaim those that once belonged to him. But not one soul has he gotten back. Not even one. Not even one of the seed of the woman is his. Satan had his hour. Jesus called it, this is your hour in the power of darkness, he said to Satan's instruments. And God didn't limit what Satan and his minions could do. He limited what Satan could do to Job, but he didn't say you can't do this to, to Satan. He gave Satan, you see, the, the opportunity to do his worst against the Savior. But even though Satan had his hour, he couldn't prevail. And why did he not prevail? Because it was not only his hour, but it was also Christ's hour. And again and again he said, my time has not come. Early when the Jews sought to arrest him, but they couldn't, he said they, they couldn't do it because his hour had not yet come. There was a coming hour that, yes, it was going to be the, the Satan's hour, the power of darkness, but it was also going to be Jesus' hour. His hour had not yet come. But at length, when it did come, that hour in which he demonstrated his perfect submission, his perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of drinking the cup of God's wrath in all of his fullness, it was his hour, and in that hour, he was supremely glorified because of what he willingly endured on our behalf. And so that hour was at the same time Satan's hour and Christ's hour. And when that hour was over, though Christ's heel was crushed, Satan's head was fatally crushed. Well, this is the first aspect of the crushing of the serpent, the seed of the woman, or by the seed of the woman, it was accomplished when Jesus died and rose again. But now I want you to notice with me in the second place that it is accomplished in believers. If you were a believer, from the moment in which you believed right on down to this day, God has brought about an enmity between you and the seed of the serpent. And from that day on, in your own experience, the seed of the serpent more and more has been crushed. This happens in the life of believers as well as it happened in the life of the 
great champion of the seed, the woman. And this began to be accomplished the day you were converted, if you were converted. On that day, God created an enmity between you and the seed of the serpent. At one time, there was peace between you and the devil. You were on good terms with each other. When he tempted you, you gladly obeyed. But through his word, God began to trouble your heart. And the world's pleasures began to seem less attractive. By God's grace, the juice of that apple of temptation no longer tasted good anymore. It was gone, so to speak. You saw that you were living in sin. And you were miserable because of your conviction over your sin. And now you hated that sin that you once loved. You cried out against it. You repented of it. You groaned under its bondage. And then you saw a champion that was able to deliver you. And you heard of a substitute who stood in your room and in your stead. You saw someone who bore your sins upon the cross. You saw how sin could both be forgiven and how it could also be overthrown. It could be forgiven and you could be forever free of the guilt of sin. But also it could be overthrown, it could be conquered. And you saw that it was by an awful bruising of Christ's heel that this took place. You beheld with hushed astonishment the agony, the gore of Golgotha. And you saw in a way that you'd never seen before that there was someone that was bruised for you. And on that day, in your experience, it came to pass that the serpent's head in you was crushed. The power of sin was broken. And your guilt was forever gone. You were no longer under the tyranny of the prince of the world. And some of you in this very room, you say, you have been delivered from heinous sins. Sins you don't want or you're not proud of. You don't want to even say them, speak of them in your testimony to others. Some of you, perhaps, foul uncleanness. But others of you, perhaps, were the devil's dupes in a different way. You might not be like that woman described in Luke chapter 7 who was a notorious sinner, as it's described. But you were proud. And the devil's sin is pride. And you wouldn't stoop to do what other people do. And you were proud of that. You were, you were better than other people. You were just as much, though, a slave of sin as, as, as that woman who was a sinner. You were a slave of pride, and it's a stench in Jesus' nostrils. But all the glory be to the Savior. He conquered that sin of pride. He conquered the sins, other sins, perhaps. Maybe it was greed in your case. Whatever it was, worldliness, pride, all glory be to Jesus. Satan's absolute hold upon your soul was, was, was crushed. It was broken. And yes, you struggle with remaining sin. But in your heart and in your life, the serpent's head has been crushed. Now, maybe there's some people in this room. You're still among those that are easily led around by the serpent and his servants. But God has perhaps even begun to make you miserable in your sin. You're troubled in ways that you weren't in the past. You've begun to dread being the objects of eternal wrath. You've begun to dread that place of condemnation that's been prepared for the devil and for his angels. And in the past, you see, your, your heart was hardened. And before your heart is hardened even more, I would urge you, I would urge you to flee today to the seed of the woman, to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. In him is pardon, in him alone. In him is a twofold righteousness, a legal righteousness that can be put to your account in the courtroom of heaven and a practical righteousness that makes you fit to enter heaven. And through him alone, through the seed of the woman, it's only through him, it's possible for the head of the serpent to be crushed in your life and in your experience. But to you that are believers... It's also God's will that the head of the serpent would be crushed more and more in your own life. Satan still tries to bruise your heel. The enmity still is there. It rages on. He tempts you with blasphemous thoughts sometimes. In times of difficulty, urges you to, to resort to desperate measures, just like Abraham did when he 
when he took his concubine. And he raises questions in your mind that would lead you to doubt, perhaps, the very existence of God. This could happen, yes, in a Christian's mind. Or while you're going through a deep struggle, a deep, uh, dark time in life, he would lead you to question whether God is actually a merciful God. Do you really think, he says, that God will allow you to go through what you're going through right now? Do you think that God would take your husband? Do you think that God would take your father? Do you think that God would take this one from your life? Do you think that God would bring these other people, other trials into your life? If he's really a merciful, kind God, Satan would put these thoughts in your mind. And sometimes it's not Satan himself, but rather his earthly seed that troubles you. And although our land is not a land in which there are stakes that are erected, and people tied to those stakes and burned to death because of their allegiance to Jesus. And even though there are no torture racks prepared throughout our land, yet the seed of the serpent has continued to have his, still has his venomous quality. He is still a hater. And more and more in our day as Christians, we are, we are being hated. More and more, you see, we are faced with difficult situations as believers. You Christian students, you are tempted to self-censor lest you get kicked out of, out of a class or lest you be called a homophobe or a transphobe or a bigot. And you know that if you express your true convictions in some paper, you're going to get a failing grade. And you're looked upon as antisocial because you don't want to hang around with people that have filthy mouths. Or you're rejected by your extended family because of your views of the Lord's Day. And in these and other ways, those who are Satan's seeds, you see, they're still trying to bruise your heel. Dear young men, dear young women, don't be surprised if you are assailed. If you get into trouble because of your Christian convictions, instead of being discouraged, dear ones, be encouraged by this. It's proof that you're on the right side. Satan doesn't trouble his own. He troubles the seed of the woman. That's who he persecutes. And if the servants of the serpent mock you, if they say all manner of evil things against you, false to you on account of your commitment to Jesus, rejoice, Jesus says, and be exceedingly glad. This is proof that indeed there is an enmity between you and the seed of the serpent. But be encouraged even more by this. The serpent's head shall at last be broken. If there was ever a pagan city opposed to the gospel, it was that great pagan city of Rome. If there was ever a city given over to debauchery, Paul writes of it in Romans 1. If there ever was a city that found perverse delight in seeing Christians tortured in the amphitheater and being put to death, it was Rome. And to Christians living in Rome, it must have been tremendously encouraging, therefore, as they read the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, to come to the end of that book and to read these words, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Now the serpent, he can do everything he can to destroy you, but he's only able to do what God allows him to do. And it's never true of you in the fullest sense of the word that Satan has his hour. God won't allow him to, to go any further than in, in his tormenting than he allows. He won't give Satan free reign like he did with Jesus. And in the midst of all your present troubles, there is this encouragement that they will not last forever. He'll crush the serpent shortly, that promise says, Romans chapter 16. And while the damned in hell will never be closer to paying for the sins even after a thousand years than when they first began their sufferings, you are assured that the time of your testing and trial is short. The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Meanwhile, he's on a short leash. And if the worst of all enemies, the archfiend of hell, who stirs up all manner of hatred and trouble against the seed of the woman, and who is relentless devoted to seeking ways to destroy you, if such an enemy is on a short leash, be assured there is no trial that is that you experience that is not under the control of God. 
For the last few days, we have been confronted by an awful specter, the specter of death. We don't like to think about death. We put it out of our minds. We try to gloss it over and make it look pretty at funeral homes. But it's an ugly thing. It's something that's come into the world because of sin. And this is something that originated in the heart of the devil. He's the author of death. The very one that said to Eve, you should not surely die. He was using that words to make her die. He wanted her to die. He wanted her to be separated from God. He's a liar right from the beginning. And the most painful aspect of our present experience with death is the separation that it brings. It brings separation from the people that we love. It separates you and me from people that were such a source of love and joy. When I am away sometimes for a week or so from my dear wife, there's no pleasure during those days while I'm away than to get on the phone and to hear her voice. I can't see her face, but I can hear her voice. It's a, a great source of pleasure to hear her speak. No, it's not just a tape recording, but actually her speaks to me. But death cuts off even hearing a loved one on the phone. Added to this pain, the apparent finality of this separation. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were shut out from the garden. There was a separation, you see, from everything that was good and blessed and wonderful. And, and for, for all appearances, it looked like it was final. The gates were closed. An angel with a flaming sword kept them from going back in. And to the saints of Thessalonica who lost their loved ones, it was a great source of comfort to know, therefore, that this separation from these loved ones, it was only temporary. For as Paul writes, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And so I say to you that grieve, your husband, your father, your grandfather, your friend, Leo, Jesus will bring him when he returns. The separation will be over. But there's an even greater consolation. There's one whose love is better than the love that you've experienced with anybody here below. This afternoon we're going to hear more about this love, but I want to just remind you at this point that the separation and death that's been introduced by the serpent, it can't touch the best of all loves, the best of all joys, the love and the joy that's experienced with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul's words in Romans 8 are so meaningful at a time like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angel, angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Words taken from Romans chapter 8. Well, we've seen that the serpent's mortification is accomplished first when Christ died and rose again, second in believers. And now more briefly in the third place, it's accomplished through the collective seed of the church. Satan's seed, it commonly operates in a collective way. They gather together. When Sanballat heard that Nehemiah and his Jewish brethren were rebuilding the wall, he mocked the Jews. He sought to rile up the army of Samaria. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Well, they completed in a day. And then he enlisted some other helper. Tobiah the Ammonite, he joined in the hostile opposition. Whatever they build, he said, even if a fox goes up to it, it'll break down their stone wall. 
and when mockery didn't deter God's people. The enemies conspired to come and attack Jerusalem and create such confusion that they would give up. And throughout the history of the church, the opposition of the serpent's seed has banded together in order to bring God's cause to a halt. And sometimes this has taken the form of great persecution, such as took place in the Roman Empire, in England in the days of Bloody Mary, to this day in places like North Korea. And in the face of such corporate persecution, it's often right that the seed of the woman would respond in a corporate way, that we would band together in our response. Corporate prayer is a primary way in which this is done. We pray for our brothers and sisters undergoing persecution, pooling our resources together in order to help the persecuted, preferably through local churches, but sometimes even through such organizations as Voice of Martyrs. I get so many people send me money for political things they want me to donate to, but so few times do we hear about persecuted Christians and get news of how we can help them. It's one of the best ways in which together we can show that we are one body. There's also a a, a place for supporting people that render legal help, like the ACLJ. And one of the greatest manifestations of collective resolve It took place in the Roman amphitheaters when the leaders of the congregations were willing to face the lions, when they were willing to be burned at the stake, when sometimes even masses of them were put to death and be willing even to endure excruciating methods of death. And it was one of the greatest things that God used to to, to convert the Roman Empire. And so referring to the manner in which the followers of the Lamb were willing to be butchered and slaughtered during the early days of the church, John says in Romans 12 that they overcame the serpent by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives even unto death. Sometimes this collective opposition, it takes the form of a false religion. Even during New Testament times, false teachers attracted themselves followers in great numbers. In our day, multitudes gullibly swallow the health and wealth gospel. Large church denominations have given up orthodoxy. So sometimes it's false doctrine. Sometimes Satan uses false professors that sow seeds of division in the church. He uses divisive persons in the church that don't hesitate to fill the ears of unsuspecting people with all manner of slanderous reports. And then he will use those same people that they leave the church to to keep you from from, from coming to the church. And in this connection, it's exceedingly helpful to recognize the way in which the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman and the bruising of the head of the serpent take place together. It is often, as it was with Jesus, that at the very time in which the church inflicts a mortal blow on the head of the serpent, That serpent sinks his fangs, you see, into the heel of the church. And when the church goes forth to conquer, it's typically in the midst of suffering, therefore, and pain. As we preach Christ and him crucified, the gates of hell are shaken. Sinners are brought into Jesus. This doesn't take place, though, without our heels being bruised. So don't be discouraged when opposition is raised against the church. When the hatred of the world is aroused. It's, it's the seed of the woman. It's going to take place. So when we go forth to tell sinners that the only way that they can be right with God through faith in Christ who suffered and died in behalf of sinners, this, this means, we would think it would be glad news, but it, it's, it's met with opposition. How dare you tell us that we're so evil that we need, we need that kind of a, a salvation? How dare you treat us like the wretched people like that, that a gruesome death you see is required for their deliverance. And so the seed of the serpent it opposes the very means of rescue that we proclaim to them. But also let's remember that when we suffer for Christ, we don't suffer for our own sake and alone. We suffer in union with Jesus. The seed of the serpent is united to the serpent. The seed of the woman is united to the seed of the woman par excellence, to the Lord Jesus. We are confederates with Christ. Now the devil doesn't care so much about you. 
He just hates the one that's in you, Jesus. If you weren't in union with Jesus, he'd leave you alone. He wouldn't trouble you. But because you're in union with Jesus, that's why he persecutes you. During the days of Bloody Mary, a woman was about to give birth as she was condemned to die. And because of the severity of her labor pains, she cried out in anguish. And so her cruel adversary said, how will you bear to die for your religion if you make such an ado now? Ah, she said, now I suffer in my own person as a woman, but then I shall not suffer, but Christ in me. So dear ones, don't let the possibility of some kind of suffering on behalf of Jesus and suffering for the truth. Don't let this frighten you into silence. Whatever you are called to endure in the coming days, you suffer as one joined to Jesus, and he will give you grace. Well, finally, I want to direct your attention to the ultimate accomplishment of this bruising of the crushing of the serpent. And let this thought encourage you. The serpent's head will at last be utterly crushed in every way. The day is coming in which Satan and sin and even death itself will be utterly vanquished. Reigning evil will be banished from the earth. Grace shall reign through righteousness. And it will do this forever and ever. The day is coming in which every spot and every wrinkle will be removed. You and I will stand before the presence of God with no faults whatsoever. And what a day of triumph that will be. Oh, what a glorious day the resurrection will be. What day of wonders it will be. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then all that are in Christ who are still alive, when he comes back, they will be joined with these resurrected saints and surround the Lamb. And on that day, we will see our victorious Prince in all of his splendor. We will see him who died in weakness, who was raised in power, now returning as the champion promised in our text. And at last, the fog of time will be lifted. There will be no confusion anymore about who won the victory. Together with us, the whole universe will see the final shattering of the serpent's head. It won't be an aborted message, Christ defeated. It'll be the full message, Christ defeated the enemy. On that day, we will see our conqueror riding forth prosperously because of truth and righteousness. And at his right hand shall be his exalted people. May every person in this room be among those that hail the arrival of this conquering king. This is God's promise hidden in a curse. What a day it will be when both the promised blessing is fulfilled and the terrible curse is removed forever for God's people. The ultimate crushing of the serpent's head, it means that for all eternity, this evil, foul fiend will never be allowed into God's garden again. He will never be allowed to tempt us. He will never be allowed to put his suggestive spin on things. He will never be an instrument of seeking to dis make us disobey God. And by the seed of the woman, paradise will be restored. And the mischief of the foul fiend of hell will be banished forever. There there will be a pure river with the water of life, clear as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And on either side of the river, the tree of life will copiously grow. Death will be no more. All the effects of the curse will be gone. Separation from those we love will never happen again. And above all, Separation of any kind between us and our Savior will be forever a thing of the past. What a prospect this is for every grieving saint. You who are bound to our brother Leo in love, you will see his face and you will hear his voice. And it won't just be a phone call. And you will see him and hear him never be to be separated from that face and voice again. But above all, you will see Jesus, and you will hear the voice of Jesus. 
And you who love this promised Savior, who was announced at the very beginning of time, you will see his face and hear his voice forever. Christ and his seed will forever be united, never to be separated in any way whatsoever. Otherwise known as the bride, this seed together with the spirit, he says to all of you that are still in the camp of the serpent, he says to you, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And him who is thirsty, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that we have this glorious Savior, this glorious conqueror, this one who by his death and his resurrection and by his coming again has changed the whole picture of this sin-cursed earth. And we do thank you that this evil one who still causes trouble to us, the evil world that still seeks to draw us into its net, that all of this will someday be a thing of the past. And we do pray that while we go through this veil of tears, as we lose those that we love, as we struggle with sin, as we know to our own shame, our own imperfections, both individually and as a church. And as we continue in the fight, let us help us, O oh Lord, to do so with faith. Help us to see Jesus, who has actually already won the victory for us, who has secured that victory, and whom we will see someday as our great and glorious champion. And we pray, O oh Father, that you would comfort those that grieve with these thoughts. We pray, O oh Father, that you'd be pleased to enable us to serve you faithfully from this day until, like our brother, we too are called home to be with you and our work on earth is done. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior.